Welcome to Now Appalachia, hosted by author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. This show profiles the authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. And now, Appalachia. And hello, friends, and we welcome you once again to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and coming to you as we do each and every episode of the program on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and whatever podcast program you like to listen to. And we're also coming to you uh, just from the outskirts of the campus of the University of Mississippi in Oxford, Mississippi. So we are glad to uh, be here and glad to be with you once again as we continue profiling the outstanding Appalachian authors authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections and influences impact their works. And we have a, a fantastic writer with us here on the program today. She's a veteran of our program. She's been with us twice before and she's so wonderful and she writes such wonderful books. We have to have her on every time she comes out with a new one. And that author is Jess Montgomery. She is here today to talk to us about her latest novel and it is fantastic. It's called The Stills and it is the third book in the uh, Sheriff Lily Ross series following the Widows and the Hollows. And we're delighted to have Jess uh, with us here today. She is also the literary life columnist for the Dayton Daily News in Dayton, Ohio. And she also writes a new Writer's Digest magazine column, which some of you maybe have read if you're a subscriber or reader of that magazine. It's called Level Up Your Writing. It's um, a great column. We're going to talk to her a little bit more about that in just a few minutes as well. Uh, based on early chapters of the first in the Kinship series, The Widows, Jess was awarded an Ohio Arts Council Individual Artists Grant for the Literary Arts, and she was also named the John E. Nance Writer-in-Residence at Thurber House in Columbus, Ohio, and she lives in her native state of Ohio today. So Jess, so good to have you back on Now Appalachia. So delighted to have you here. Welcome back to the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I have loved this series since it started, since you came out with the Widows and introduced us to Sheriff Lily Ross, and you followed it up with a wonderful second book in the series called The Hollows, and now you are back with more adventures for Sheriff Ross in the stills. And let's just bring everybody up to speed real quickly. If they're not familiar with the book, or maybe there's been some time and some distance from the minute they finished up The Hollows until uh, they get ready to pick up the stills. And basically, what has happened in this adventure or this series for Sheriff Lily Ross uh, she works and lives in the fictional town of Kinship, which is also located in the fictional town of Brownwood County in Ohio. She inherited the sheriff's job from her murdered husband and then kind of won a term on her own. She was actually elected for her own term after serving out the term of her husband. And her bereavement and everything that she's experienced has led her to friendships with so many other strong women. And those friendships and those relationships really drive those first two books. And now here we are in the third book, The Stills. And we have a situation where prohibition has arrived in Brownwood County, and it is kind of splitting the county into two separate uh, divisions and kind of two separate factions. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. But I wanted to ask you first, this is your third book with Sheriff Lily Ross. So how has she evolved and developed uh, over the course of the three novels? Where do we kind of see her uh, as a person, as a woman, as the sheriff of uh, kinship in Brownwood County. Where is she kind of right now professionally and personally as we open up the still? Well, as we open up the stills, uh, professionally, she has come to terms with 
which she felt guilty over in the previous book, but she has come to terms with, she loves this job. She loves being sheriff and she wants to remain sheriff as long as the voters of Bronwyn County will keep her every four years <laughs> in that job. And uh, personally, she has, she's moved. Um, she's, you know, the county sheriff. So she lives uh, just outside of the county seat of kinship um, in, a, in a farmhouse. Um, there's a whole backstory to that, but, um, and she loves, because she loves being an outdoors woman. She hunts, she fishes, she, you know, hikes. Um, and she, you know, finds, I think she's an introvert like me. So she, she refills her well. Um, I realized this as I had her, had to cut a few of these scenes where she's yet again out in the woods thinking and contemplating nature. <laughs> so um, she loves being connected with nature. And uh, that's one reason she lives out uh, on this, this farm, uh, small farm. And she lives with her children and her mother, mama, and um, her brother, her change of, her mother's change of life baby, who's her little brother's the same age as her son. <laughs> so um, that these, you know, three kids and two women live in this, this farmhouse. That's where she's at uh, personally. Um, and she's also coming to terms with she will, that she will always mourn and miss her husband who was killed in the line of duty in the first book, but that maybe it's okay to, you know, she's young. She turns like 30 or no, she's 29 in this book. Um, so she's young and she realizes maybe it's okay to love again. And so she's trying to recognize that, but at the same time, you know, it's 1927 and women didn't work outside the home if they were married. So how is she going to resolve that? We don't know yet. <laughs> so that's where she is personally. That's fantastic. And, and she's a wonderful character. And I have enjoyed watching her deal with these issues and deal with uh, the, the loss of her husband, but also watching her grow into this job and kind of situating herself as really a fixture uh, in kinship and be someone that kind of everybody in the town can turn to and lean on uh, for different things. And I was looking through your book and I was trying to find a passage that might give us some insight into kind of uh, where Lily is and what's, what's going on in her life right now. And you touched on it a moment ago. And um, I, picked, I picked out a passage from early in the book on page 11. And then I want to ask you a question about kind of uh, what, she, what she has done in the past, which kind of leads us up into what's going on here in the stills. And on page 11, you write, now Lily refocuses her thoughts on her own family. There's a fine line between trusting the instincts that serve her well as sheriff, such as how to definitely handle the upcoming visit from Willie Brandt, and also putting her nose in another family's business where it's not needed. And one of the things I found so interesting in, their, in your book is that we talk about prohibition. We learn and we know that as we read on that moonshining has sort of been a way of life in, in Brownwood County for a long time, but that even though Lily has a, a strong moral compass and a strong sense of purpose, she's been kind of known to look away from some of the still work and some of the, the stills that have been propping up and cropping up in the area. But something happens in your book that gets, causes her to kind of reassess that decision. And that is a 13 year old boy named Jebediah Rankin uh, 
somehow gets into some moonshine that was produced at one of these stills and nearly dies. And Lily realizes that something more sinister is going on here. So can you tell us a little bit of, about that and kind of how Lily kind of has to make that shift from sort of looking away or pretending kind of out of sight, out of mind about the moonshining going on. And now she has to deal with it because uh, of what happens to Jebediah. Yeah, it's interesting to think, you know, I think when people hear the word prohibition or think about the 20s, uh, 1920s era, you know, it's, oh, well, prohibition was this thing that there, a switch went off. Suddenly uh, the whole country was dry and then people realized, well, that's not working very well. And suddenly the whole country was not dry anymore, um, but that's not how it happened. It was very complex. There were tons of social justice issues that are still ongoing that um, are part of you know, prohibition and why it came to be. Um, and it was actually <laughs> the original wedge, political wedge issue, um, which is not a term that would have been used back then, but, um, but I think Lily kind of senses this and taps into it and looks around and goes, okay, my county and other counties nearby in Ohio have been dry for years, years and years and years before prohibition. But also people have been, have been um, brewing moonshine for years and years and years. <laughs> and, you know, if you're a, a sheriff in this remote, rural, rocky, hilly, difficult terrain county, and you've only got a, you know, an occasional deputy to help you out, you can only spread yourself so far. So rather than try to run down everybody who's in violation of what is now the federal law, She's just like, okay, unless there's something that's really harmful, if I don't see it, I don't know it, and then it's all right. Um, and it's uncomfortable for her because she does believe in the rule of law um, and that it should be applied equally to one and all. And that if you don't like the law, there are ways to go about changing the law. And yet there's this practical side to her as well. So it's interesting to put her in a quandary like that. Absolutely. And uh, something that that makes uh, that that decision so interesting is that not only do we find out that Jebediah almost dies from drinking uh, that poison moonshine, but uh, later on he catches uh, um, um, he catches a glimpse of uh, of someone being shot, a revenue being shot. Uh, near a good friend of hers still, and that good friend uh, is Marvana Whitcomb, and uh, we learn that Marvana has gone back, has gotten back into, or going back into uh, making moonshine in order to pay for the medical bills and doctor's uh, treatments that she needs because her daughter's uh, suffering from severe case of asthma, but all of a sudden now here Zebediah Harkin has looked, has seen this person shot, um, and we realize that, uh-oh, things really are kind of going up a notch. And one of the things I, I always like about your books, too, is that once that kind of crack happens uh, in, in, in the town and Lily has to step forward, whatever it may be, I love how you expand that crack and all of a sudden more people start taking advantage of what's happened. And that happens in this story because George Vogel, 
who is uh, a businessman, uh, has now coming into the county. He takes advantage of kind of the chaos that's being brought about by uh, the revenue are getting shot and what's going on here. And he's moving back into uh, the town and kind of moving in on Lily's turf, so to speak, and kind of doing some other nefarious things. Tell us a little bit about George, what he's kind of up to, and the relationship that he and Lily have, because it's they have really some spectacular <laughs> in, in exchanges in the story. Um, and, and, yeah. <laughs> And some of it is some of it is is explicit, and then there's a lot of history and just a lot going on there. Tell us a little bit about him and and their relationship and what he's up to and what kind of problems he causes Lily. So I, George is the the villain you love to hate, <laughs> and George is based on um, George. My George Vogel is based on the real life George Remus, who um, was a Cincinnati lawyer and uh, bootlegger and crime boss and was was a big time like you know Al Capone level type uh, bootlegger and crime boss and so George pre it, it, there's a backstory of George had kind of I don't want to give away too much but let's just say that Lily's husband Daniel in the first book you know, it's revealed that um, is beholden to George and therefore kind of, you know, turns a blind eye um, and on a very small level to um, George's uh, shenanigans um, in the county and nearby. And then George is kind of, you know, off the radar after, after the widows a bit, but then he decides to come back with a vengeance, um, partly because he has married um, a woman named Fiona who had been a resident of um, kinship, but now is married to this big time crime boss. And I kind of love that because what I like to explore is the tension between community um, expectations and individual needs and where those sort of raw boundaries happen. And that's where all the good gooey stuff of conflict um, can take place. And Fiona has wanted to, you know, she has dealt with being a widow. She's also a widow, um, but she has dealt with the, the faith that life has given her in a very different way than Lily in that she aligns herself with this crime boss, George. Um, but at, at the same time, they're similar in that they're not just going to take what life has dealt them meekly and follow expectations. Neither woman follows expectations, but they defy expectation in these very different ways. And so they're both, they, they share the narration of this novel. Each novel has Lily and another co-narrator from the community. So I just really wanted to explore Lily having a co-narrator who's not a friend um, and not someone she particularly likes and who, like I said, they're similar in some ways, but different and very different life choices. Um, and it was so much fun to bring back George and to think about so why did he become a crime boss? What is his backstory? Why is he why is he choosing to do this beyond you know money and power? Um, and to kind of dig into him and his his sidekick Abe Miller, dig into him a little bit more too. Um, and of course, you know Lily doesn't trust George. George doesn't really trust Lily. I mean, yet he really respects her because she's tough. You know. Absolutely. So yeah, they have they have some fun scenes. <laughs> oh, they do. Those are some of my favorite in the in the book. And 
I had to ask you about them because they're so good. And, I, and really all of the scenes that Lily is involved in, when she really has to confront uh, the face of who is causing problems in her town, those are some of the best scenes. And I just love the way she, she stands up. She's strong. She's smart. She's not going to put up with uh, any of that uh, intimidation by anybody that she runs across. And I love that. And somebody also wanted to ask you about this kind of traveling in Vogel's entourage, uh, you mentioned Fiona, but also coming along and tagging along is her former brother-in-law, Luther Ross, who is now an agent for the newly formed Bureau of Prohibition. Can you tell us about the Bureau of Bro- Prohibition, kind of what their role is in the story, and what is it that Luther is trying to accomplish by being a, an agent for them? So the Bureau of Prohibition is uh, grew out, it was part of the ATF um, and until 1927, it, it was like several layers down, but then in 27, it became its own bureau. Um, and the goal was that there would be all these agents who would uh, go out and finally enforce uh, the Volstead Act, which are the laws that were to make prohibition work, um, but they were very poorly paid. There weren't a nearly enough of them. They were spread so thin. Um, it was sad. You know, it was just sort of sad reading some of the history. And of course, you know, a lot of them tried sincerely to, um, to, to do their jobs, but, you know, it also set up a situation where it was really easy to become a person who was on the take. And so Luther, who, again, you're right, Lily and Luther have a contentious history. He connects up with George and he thinks, Luther thinks that he can play off, he, <laughs> he thinks he can play off George Vogel versus the Bureau. And he can kind of be a double agent for both of them. And his goal is he wants he wants money and power because he had been the uh, manager of um, an owner of the coal mine company in the first book. And he ends up not not having that role anymore. And he misses having that kind of power and control. He wants it back and he thinks he can do it. He thinks he can be really clever and do it in this way where he plays off, you know, these two powerful um, organizations. Good luck, Luther. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And we don't want to give too much away about what, what happens to him, but uh, right, yeah, right. he has his hands full. Let, 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 let's, let's, let's say that. He has got his hands full. You're absolutely right. We're delighted to be speaking with author Jess Montgomery here on Now Appalachia. We're talking to her about her sensational new uh, character-driven mystery. It's called The Stills. It is the third in the Lily Ross a mystery series following uh, The Widows, which was the first book, and The Hollows, which was the second book. And uh, it's just a wonderful story with fleshed out characters. It's beautifully written. And we're going to talk more about it here uh, in just a second. But uh, Jess, I wanted to ask you something about, I I followed you you a lot on social media. And one of the things I really appreciate about not only these great books that you're writing, this kind of historical uh, historically based uh, mysteries, but you've been doing a lot of work in recent years on kind of women in the 1920s and uh, their stories and 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 what women, uh, strong women like Lily had been up to during that period. I wanted to ask you, as, as you learn more about women from that period and you learn more about uh, how they were kind of in their own way, standing up for what they believed in and what they felt that was important, why do you think it's we've had so much time pass before we started paying attention to these women's stories from that period? What, why are we just now almost 100 years 
later, just coming across some of these stories and some of these women that you've researched and discovered and, and are writing about and posting about on social media. Why have we had such a gap and why are we just now discovering them and why are people starting to become interested uh, in those women from, from this period of, of the 1920s and early 1930s? Um, I think there's a gap because I hate to say it, but misogyny is real. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's been easy to sort of be dismissive of uh, what women um, and other marginalized groups have accomplished um, in, in difficult times, you know, and, and every time is difficult. It's not like it's easy now either. Um, but uh I think that's why some of these stories just, you know, they get kind of dismissed as, well, she was an exception, you know, not, oh, okay, maybe why was she an exception? Um, you know, why weren't there more women who, who, you know, had those opportunities or took those opportunities? I think we're fascinated by those stories now because, because exactly that, that we can go, wait a minute, you know, women have been achieving things that defied expectations ever since there have been women. <laughs> so um, we're fascinated by that. And, and maybe you're thinking in particular of um, uh, uh, Mabel Walker Willebrandt, who gets a little cameo. Once I discovered her, um, I had to include her uh, in a cameo. And it is plausible that she would have been in that part of, of Ohio and met up with Lily very briefly but she was the um, highest ranking uh, woman in the federal government at the time of you know, the 1920s. She was the assistant attorney general um, and she was as well known as you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is now. She was known across the land um, and she took very seriously like Lily, she you know, believed in the rule of law. Now she thought prohibition was silly personally but that was the rule of law. So she tried to do everything she could to enforce it. And she had some spectacular successes, um, but she also got a lot of pushback from people who, you know, on the surface were, oh yes, prohibition's the right thing to do. But then they, you know, nicknamed her terrible things like Deborah of the Dries or, um, you know, just all kinds of like pointed, um, Mrs. Firebrand was one that they called her, which was particularly not nice because she was divorced which <laughs> was also unusual for a, a woman back in the day. And what's interesting, not to just other people's work, but I've just now, cause I'm slow, uh, started watching um, Boardwalk Empire. Mm -hmm. And she eventually shows up as, not as Mabel Walker Willebrand, but a female character inspired by her shows up in, in this series later on, but not as assistant attorney general. She's an assistant like lawyer or something mm -hmm. like that. She's right. not the high level. Right. Um, so it's like, even when we take these women and, and use them, you know, their stories as inspiration for characters, sometimes they get dumbed down or, you know, moved down a notch, which I just find, ah. So it was really fun to include Mabel. Um, I found a lot of articles about her. I haven't found a book about her. I hope somebody out there is writing a biography of her. She wrote a memoir, so that would be a great, you know, starting point if anybody wants to write a biography of Mabel. 
Yeah, she she has a really interesting life, and I know oh, you, yeah. you, you, you've touched on it as well, and that would be a, a fantastic book if uh, we have somebody uh, listening to the program today that is trying to think, well, I'd like to write a nonfiction book, but I don't know what my subject would be. We've there given you, you a good person to, to start with. She would be yes. fantastic. And in addition to all the great work you're doing with your novels and kind of researching women from this period, as we mentioned uh, early in the open, you are also a new columnist for Writer's Digest magazine. You are writing a column called Level Up Your Writing Life. Tell us a little bit about how that came to be and what is your column about and what is it that you hope readers take from it uh, each time they read Writer's Digest? Well, thank you. I am super excited. I have to say, It wasn't a goal because I wasn't old enough to think, oh, I will set this goal to become a regular columnist in this magazine I've been reading for 30 plus years. Um, But it is kind of like a dream come true. Um, And the way it came about was I had written a few uh, freelance like standalone articles for the magazine. And um, I was chatting with the new editor via email and I don't know what came over me. But I said, you know, it would be just so amazing to write a regular column for for Writer's Digest. And as soon as I sent that email, I thought, wow, okay. (laughs) But she got back to me and she said, actually, we're changing uh, um, how often we publish. They went from, I think, eight to six issues a year. But we want to expand each issue to be longer. So we need a few new regular columnists. So they've added, I think, three of us. Um, And she said, why don't you, since that's, and of course I had no idea that these were their plans because they were private plans at the time. Um, She said, why don't you, you know, come up with an idea and send it to me? And I did. And she took it to the team and uh, at Writer's Digest and they said, huh, we like that idea. Let's, Let's give her a shot. So that's how it came about. And it's sort of a reminder to me, even after all these years, sometimes you just have to say to the universe, this is what I would like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so the column focuses on um, leveling up your writing craft, you know, such as how do you create a great setting that really works in your story for fiction and creative nonfiction, such as memoir. Um, But then I like to pivot and say, okay, now that now that we've looked at these tips for your characters, dear writer, how can we apply them to you and your writing life and, and help you be a more efficient writer and you know just grow more from this writing journey? It's a terrific column, and I hope that folks who uh, read Writer's Digest regularly will check it out. I enjoyed the first one that came out with the, uh, I think it was the February-March 2021 yeah. issue, so uh, it was a great, great column, and congratulations on being uh, one of the new columnists for the magazine, and again, the title is Level Up Your Writing Life, so check that out uh, from Jess Montgomery next time you pick up uh, the magazine. And we're delighted to be talking with Jess Montgomery about that and her outstanding new novel, The Stills. It's the third book in the trilogy of Sheriff Lily Ross, who inhabits and protects uh, fictional Brownwood County and also the town of Kinship. And Sharon, I want to go, or, or Jess, I want to go back to the uh, story for just a second. Um, one of the things I always like too, is there's always uh, some kind of a change in the weather uh, in a lot of your stories. Uh, and in this case, 
fall is turning to winter in this particular story. Uh, a blizzard is closing in. So we've got all these other things we've talked about going on with George Vogel coming back and with Luther Ross coming back and uh, the revenue are getting shot and, uh, you know, uh, Zebediah Harkin getting poisoned, nearly dead from a bad moonshine. And we have a blizzard also, but one of the interesting things I wanted to ask you about, about all of these things going on and, and what Lily is up to and, and everything that she's put through. One of the interesting things that I thought was, was unique to this book that maybe wasn't as strong in uh, the widows or the hollows is the fact that Lily kind of discovers through this process, she's kind of learning more, maybe the most she's ever learned about the town and kind of the norms of the town for the first time. And she's realizing that a lot of these people around her that, that she knows and feels like she knows um, are starting to kind of betray and turn on the people that are close to them in their life. And she's got to kind of navigate that too, in addition to uh, trying to solve all these other circumstances. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of what, what Lily is learning more about kinship and about Brownwood County as she starts to see people that she knows and trusts kind of, uh, I don't want to say eat their own, but kind of start turning on people that they had been had been loyal to and friendly to for a long time. They're they're forced to kind of turn on them a little bit. Well, what is she learning uh, about where she is um, uh, kind of running jurisdiction over as all that unfolds? Yeah, I think uh, you know she started out wife mother, but also worked as uh, the jail matron um, because the 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 jailhouse was right behind the sheriff's house. Now, like I say, she's moved out into the countryside a little bit, just outside of kinship. And there's a new, um, new, more modern, modern for 1927 uh, jailhouse that's a little more humane for 1927. Um, so she doesn't have to be right there in town. And so she had some awareness of, obviously if you're you know helping your husband book in, you know, so-and-so who, got into a fight or whatever. She knows her, her townspeople aren't perfect, but it's not all, you know, the, the life of the women's uh, literary club that she belongs to or the church that she goes to. Um, but yeah, she's digging into these cases. She's starting to see into individual lives and how uh, fraught those can be behind the scenes um, than, than what we um, present on the surface. And it's, it's a little startling to her, but she has to kind of grow and accept, you know, that she has to person with compassion, kind of figure out where they are, um, where they're coming from and meet them there. If that makes Very, sense. Yeah, ab absolutely. And something else I wanted to ask you about, uh, I, I made an assumption about the book when I was reading it and, and I won't give this away, but we talked about Fiona earlier. Uh, who is uh, the new wife of George Vogel, and uh, she's up to a lot of different things. And I kept thinking as I was reading the story, she's got an agenda. She's up to something, and I was right. She does have an agenda. We won't tell what that agenda is specifically because we'll we don't want to give that away, but she's working an agenda. And that, that leads me to a question I wanted to ask you because one of the things I love about your books too is that and I think this is true of all mystery and thriller writers, but you do it so well. And that is everybody's lying 
uh, in a mystery or a thriller. And, and, and I think that is, a, if there's one characteristic that identifies that genre more than any other, it's that nobody's really telling the entire truth to anybody about anything going on within the confines of that book. Uh, you do it so well, though, because I, I'm reading this and I know George Vogel's not telling Lily the entire truth when they first meet. I know that Fiona, my sense was Fiona had an agenda. She did. Um, how do you do that so well as a writer where, where every, everybody's lying and, and, and to some degree to everybody else or they're holding back so much information and only sharing so much when circumstances warrant? How do you balance that to make sure that you're giving just enough away to keep the pages turning, but you're keeping the reader engaged, especially when you've got so many wonderful characters in, in this book, especially, but in all your books? How do you do that? Because you do it so well and you balance it so well. Um, does, does that come about in revision? Is that come about with a really detailed outline? How are you able to do that? Because you do it really, really well in your story. Well, I, I actually, thank you very much for saying that because I got, I got lost in drafting this a few times because there, there definitely are, and it was a kind, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, each character is holding back and I was more aware and conscious of it with this book than any of my previous books. Um, and so I finally, I, you know, in revising, I thought, oh my gosh, I have to keep track of who knows what from whom, because it's not just that say Fiona has an agenda and she's, she's not telling Lily something and it's also, and she's also not telling George something. She had, you know, all of the characters have like different variations of what they're revealing to who. So I actually put it in a spreadsheet <laughs> because I keep a spreadsheet. You mentioned the weather, uh, which by the way, was my editor's suggestion. The first book is set in the spring, the second in the fall. And she said, I think you should write this third book, you know, in the winter. And I said, oh, but writing a book in the winter is really, that's really hard because especially, you know, in Appalachia. And she said, well, you know, are, are you up for a challenge? Oh, okay, fine. Um, so I have this spreadsheet. <laughs> that um, I always have a spreadsheet that says the chapter, who the point of view is, date, time, and what has happened in the story. So for this novel, I added two columns. One was, what's the weather? Um, and having that blizzard coming, by the way, felt really great because um, it was a challenge, but it also kind of symbolized externally what was going on inside for Lily. And then I had um, an additional character of who knows, you know, who, who knows what? in this chapter, I like, I literally had a spot to say, okay, this is now, it's like that old saying, like, just tell the truth and you don't have to keep track of the lies. So I had to keep track of the, not necessarily lies, but the misdirections. Yeah. Um, and then I went through it multiple times, like, okay, I had to make sure it was smooth. So. Yeah. I, I think fun. that is, yeah, I think that's one of the, the hardest challenges for, for writing in a mystery thriller genre is keeping track of that. But but you do it so well, and, and it just looks so flawless. And, and I know it's not, <laughs> but I wanted to see kind of kind of your approach to that. So, so I appreciate you sharing that. And my understanding is the fourth book is finished and is kind of sort of uh, sitting aside for a little while, or it's, it's, it, we're kind of in between that and starting some revisions. Is this another book in the Lily Ross series? Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure, it's the fourth book in the Lily Ross series. Um, should come out next year in 2022. I turned it in uh, about three, four weeks ago. 
so it's in my editor's and agent's hands um, and they're taking a look at it um, and I'll get notes from them and, and revise. Um, it was weird to write a book during pandemic, I have to say, because I, you know, I go places to research. <laughs> and so this fourth book, it's like, you cannot go. You must rely on what you already know or what you can find on the internet. So that was interesting to, to, to have that experience, but um, hopefully I'll get notes back soon um, from them. And in the meantime, I have, thoroughly, almost thoroughly. I've still got a little bit more to do. I'm looking around my office, reorganized everything. I moved a bookshelf and <laughs> made a more uh, a wall that's blank for a whiteboard. And um, so I can start brainstorming. I've already started brainstorming actually um, uh, a fifth uh, kinship book and a standalone. So I don't know which book uh, Minotaur will hopefully want after the fourth one I've written for them, but always be writing. <laughs> yes, that, that is the bottom line. No, no matter what's going on, pandemic, no pandemic, whatever circumstances, yes, keep writing. Very yeah. good advice. Very good advice. Mm -hmm. So Jess, in our final moments with you today, if anyone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about uh, your writing career, to find out more information about your uh, Level Up Your Writing Life column in Writer's Digest, or to talk to you about the stills, First of all, how can they get in contact with you and where can they find you? And then where can they get copies of the stills? So they can get in touch with me via my website, which is www.jessmontgomeryauthor.com or just email me at jessmontgomeryauthor at gmail.com. That works too. All the links to my social media are on my website. In terms of where to buy uh, the stills, it's available on all the usual suspects uh, of online retailers. But I'd really like to encourage people to... Uh, Look at IndieBound and uh, order um, my book or other people's books from independent booksellers. Um, independent bookstores, you know, have had a hard time in this pandemic as well as all of us have, um, and we want to keep them around. And they've been very good to me and a lot of, of other writers. So, um, yeah, so there's a link on my website that uh, leads to all these various sources to buy. But go to IndieBound, find, find a um, independent bookstore near you. Jess Montgomery has been our guest here today on Now Appalachia. Her new book is called The Stills. It is the third book in the Sheriff Willie Ross series set in fictional Brownwind County and the town of Kinship. Her first two books in the series are called The Widows and The Hollows. She is also the newly minted columnist for Writer's Digest magazine. The title of her column is Level Up Your Writing Life. Uh, pick up a copy of that latest magazine, the February-March 2021 edition, and check out Jess's column, and also uh, check out her new book, The Stills. I can't say enough wonderful things. Uh, it, it is a book that continues her series of really strong Ohio women that are facing uh, some daunting obstacles. Uh, it's beautifully written. It's a tremendous character-based mystery, if you like those types of books. And uh, just congratulations. We're, we're so happy for you uh, for the new book and to spend another uh, series and go through another uh, trying time with Sheriff Lily Ross, who's a great character. So congratulations on the stills. And when book four comes out in 2022, we'd love to have you back on the program to talk about it. So thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. I'll be looking forward to coming back. Great. Can't wait to have you. We also want to take a few moments as we uh, finish up on the program today to give a special shout out and a thank you to the executive producer of Now Appalachia, as well as the executive producer of all the podcasts that you hear 
on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. We appreciate uh, all the work that she does. She works really hard and does a lot behind the scenes to make these podcasts possible and available to you uh, each and every time, both the other podcasts from my friends and colleagues on the network, as well as this podcast, Now Appalachia. So we appreciate uh, all the work and the support that she puts in. And a reminder, a program note coming up very soon here on the program. We're going to step away from books and authors and kind of turn the table around with our publishing and business side of publishing series of podcast interviews. We're going to talk to publicists, we're going to talk to book marketers, and we're going to talk to book publishers about what goes on on the other side of the desk, so to speak. When you submit something to them, what happens, uh, what goes on, what what happens to your manuscript or your book or your chapbook or your play or whatever it is that you're working on. A lot of our authors have touched on it here on the program over the last several years, but we're going to really get down into the nitty gritty and the finite details of what happens and what do you need to be aware of as an author when that process takes place. So we're going to be talking with publicists, we're going to be talking with book marketers as well as uh, book publishers uh, over the next few episodes of the program. So stay tuned for that. We think you're really going to find it uh, entertaining and informative, and we look forward to bringing those podcasts to you. And uh, those themes and those titles came about from a lot of uh, feedback we've received from listeners to the program. So a lot of you've asked for these kinds of uh, programs to be featured on the program, so we're bringing them to you. That'll be coming your way uh, very soon, so stay tuned for that. also want to remind you this is a copyrighted podcast. This episode with our guest, Jess Montgomery, is copyrighted and owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Well, that's going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia. Please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next. Stay tuned for more outstanding podcasts from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.